This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Todd Zwillick, your host for this episode of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news changes rapidly, and things might have changed by the time you hear this podcast. So stay up to date with all the latest by listening to your local NPR member station and by visiting npr.org. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. I'm Todd Zwillick, and this is the Friday News Roundup for February 22nd, 2024. Yes, February, not October. So should we call this one not an October surprise, but an Alabama surprise? When you talk about an embryo, to me, that's a life. And so I do see where that's coming from when they talk about that. That was GOP hopeful Nikki Haley responding to big news this week from Alabama. She also faces a big test this weekend in South Carolina. But as you've just heard, something else is being tested further west in Alabama, a state Supreme Court case saying that an embryo counts as a child. We'll talk about that landmark ruling that's left families in limbo and forced clinics to halt IVF treatments. Meanwhile, here in Washington, House Republicans are scrambling to keep their presidential impeachment probe on track after the arrest of their star witness. You're listening to the 1A podcast where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be right back after this break. Stick with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Support for NPR and the following message come from Carvana on a mission to make car buying more convenient and affordable than ever before. In minutes, you can browse thousands of options under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today to get started. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. By the end of this message, two people will be told they have cancer. Yes, every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. But by the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. A gift of any amount to the American Cancer Society can help those facing cancer get free rides to care or a free place to stay closer to treatment. Donate today at cancer.org. With us this week, Anita Kumar, Senior Managing Editor at Politico. Anita, great to see you as always. Great to be back. Here in the studio with me, Wendy Benjaminson, Washington Senior Editor for Bloomberg News. Hi, Wendy. Hey, great to be here. And Arthur Delaney, Senior Reporter at HuffPost. Arthur, welcome back. Great to be here. All right, great to have everybody here today. So as I said, let's start right in Alabama, where a state Supreme Court ruling has thrown fertility treatment and politics into turmoil. That court decided that frozen embryos created through in vitro fertilization have the same rights as children, and the consequences were immediate. Local clinics stopped providing IVF treatments for fear of prosecution, including the state's largest hospital, the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System. Patients and doctors have a ton of questions in Alabama and all around the country, and it set off a fresh political and legal backlash against conservatives 
heading into the November elections. Anita, walk us through some of the reaction and the implications of this Alabama decision. Well, you're right. People are still trying to figure out what this means. This was sort of narrowly applied to three couples who had sued a fertility clinic uh, in Alabama, the Center for Reproductive Medicine, and for inadvertently destroying their embryos. So they had argued that they were entitled to punitive damages under a state law about wrongful death of a minor act. So as you indicated, this is really changed a lot of things. A couple of lower courts had said that this was not the way it should go, that embryos were neither people nor children, but the Supreme Court disagreed. So we don't really know what's going to happen. We know what people think should happen. Um, You know, it's really, it's first of its kind ruling, and it's, it's supposed to be somewhat narrow. But what you're seeing is states all across the country, even before this, trying to look at these laws that relate to sort of fertilization. And so what we're seeing is the reaction is people like you just heard Nikki Haley saying, well, yes, this was right and and we should go move forward. So the, the strongest reaction we've heard is what this will be for fertility patients uh, that are trying to get pregnant. You know, a lot of people are talking about abortion, but it's really more likely to affect those that are trying to, to get into clinics in the first place. And thousands and thousands, if not millions of families who've used IVF to form their families all across the United States, including including uh, members of, of my family too, I should say. So there are familial stakes, of course, political stakes. You guys, Vice President Kamala Harris, she drew a direct line between the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which Anita mentioned, and Alabama's Supreme Court ruling. Here she is at a roundtable on reproductive rights in Grand Rapids, Michigan on Thursday. So on the one hand, the proponents are saying that an individual doesn't have a right to and an unwanted pregnancy. And on the other hand, the individual does not have a right to start a family. And the hypocrisy abounds. Wendy, if the politics of Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs decision weren't hot enough, <laughs> I mean, you heard it in the vice yes. president's voice. Yes, yes, it did. This this just threw a match on the burning gasoline embers that were there from the Dobbs decision um, of 2022. The ruling itself was very surprising in that the language that Chief Justice Tom Parker wrote in the concurring opinion was almost like a religious sermon. You know, he said, uh, even before birth, all human beings have the image of God and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing his glory, which is not language you usually hear in a court ruling. Human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of God, said the chief justice. Exactly. And so that seems you know, a little far afield from the sort of rulings that you're used to hearing from a court. But this could really backfire on Republicans because there are uh, Christians, there are religious people of other religions, there are conservatives who believe that in vitro fertilization is a life-creating event, not a life-killing event, as, as the vice president suggested. And they and Democrats who have been upset about Dobbs um, may now turn out to prevent state Supreme Courts in swing states like Georgia and Arizona from doing the same thing. Well, here's the voice of Gabby Goydell, who's a patient who on the very same day that the court ruling came down in Alabama began daily injections ahead of egg retrieval in her own treatment. She's pursuing IVF in Alabama after three miscarriages and has been speaking to the Associated Press. If I viewed each of those ones as children, that means that I would have lost just in the IVF process 
a lot of children, but that's the natural baby making IVF process. So emotionally, I, I can't view them as children. They're potential children and they hold a lot of, of possibilities. But in, in my view, they're just possibilities. Arthur, I hear Gabby as a would-be mother, but also as a voter, frankly, a, a woman voter in America. Um, Wendy's right. The, the Republican reaction to this decision was really all over the map over, uh, over the weekend. Senator Tommy Tuberville said he was all for it, but against it, but you need more kids. But that didn't make sense. Tim Scott, who's vying to be vice president, seemed to not want to talk about it at all. And then there's more. Well, yeah, Republicans are, are not in Washington right now, and so there's not that much because there's fewer opportunities to force them to talk. And Tuberville, uh, of course, you can always get a weird word salad out of him. But uh, the, the woman who is getting treatment, you know, that's a normal person. And this ruling is weird. And and uh, Chief Justice Parker, who who wrote it and, and basically said, we've got to go straight to the Bible to understand the meaning of the term sanctity of life. Uh, appeared on a, a podcast with a QAnon guy that was uploaded the same day that this ruling was posted. So this is just, it's not normal stuff, and it's terrible for the Republicans, and they know it, so they're not going to say much if they can avoid doing so. Anita, not saying much, I mean, how effective can that be? I, I look back to all of the elections, referenda, state political activities that have taken place since Dobbs. Kansas, Michigan, Wisconsin Supreme Court election, special elections for Congress. As an analyst said to me just a couple of days ago, abortion is undefeated in elections since Dobbs. And this seems to go even further in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, that's right. It's going to be very hard to not weigh in, which is why you're seeing uh, Nikki Haley and other Republicans sort of being put out there and saying, you know, people asking them questions. It's going to be really impossible as the election gets closer. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, that abortion has been something that's really the issue of abortion, I should say, has really energized Democrats and they're using it in, in local races, in states, on the federal level, and not just the vice president and president, but all across the country, they're really using this to energize their base and try to get people out. They're simply not going to let Republicans not talk about this. They, this, you know, they feel like, yeah, they don't have some winning issues. They want the economy and immigration to go better for them. But actually, this is one they feel like they can really campaign on. In Kentucky, a group of Jewish women, Wendy, who want to use IVF but fear prosecution under the state's abortion ban, sued that state in 2022 under its Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And they argued that Jewish doctrine states that life doesn't begin until a child takes its first breath. Sort of a religious freedom argument there. I contrast yeah. it with what Arthur said about the Supreme Court justice in Alabama. Is this headed to the Supreme Court? You know, it could. It is certainly important enough to enough people that it could be headed to the Supreme Court. On the other hand, if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, you're going to take it to the same court that overturned Roe v. Wade in the first place. This is not an abortion-friendly court. This is also a pro-states' rights court. So you're going to— But would this be a court that would be willing to back up the notion that an embryo for life-expanding IVF indeed has— effectively human rights. Right. That would be the big question that they would have to answer. But the risk, because of the factors I mentioned just a moment ago, would be huge. 
The the opinion is really grounded in the Alabama Supreme Court, and I think legal experts say that makes it not really a winner for going to the Supreme Court. But we can see the path here for Republicans. There's an Alabama Republican who's going to introduce legislation that would protect IVF. Uh, Chief Justice Parker said in his opinion that he believed the IVF uh, industry could create more safeguards. Uh, like, like you know, he said that this is how it is done in European countries. Uh, he said it's overly unregulated. So there's, I, I think there will be a middle ground that they'll seek. Right. And that's exactly what we think the Supreme Court was doing when it overturned, when it overturned Roe, which was let state legislatures, let the states, you know, like finally put a bow on this. Coming up, a bombshell arrest made by the FBI, Joe Biden's new plan for the border, and the promise of mass roundups from his likely rival. We're going to take a short break. Stick around. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands. But because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR. All right, let's jump back in with an update on that FBI informant charged last week with lying about President Joe Biden and his son Hunter's business dealings in Ukraine with Burisma. Alexander Smirnov says officials associated with Russian intelligence were involved in sharing the story with him before he was arrested and charged with perjury by the special counsel who was investigating Hunter Biden. So Arthur Smirnov was key to House Republicans' impeachment inquiry against Joe Biden. Where does this revelation and the revelations, not only that Smirnov appears to have been according to the special counsel, lying, but also appears to have been getting his information, at least he says so, from Russian agents, leave that inquiry. It's terrible for the impeachment inquiry, uh, devastating even, because this was a, a centerpiece piece of evidence. Uh, it was uh, an FBI form that memorialized the tip he had given. The FBI Smirnov has been an informant for a decade. And uh, they, they had said he was highly credible in a briefing with lawmakers before this lying allegation came about. And, and what Smirnov had claimed was that the head of uh, a Ukrainian gas company, Burisma, had bribed Joe and Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden served on the board of that company. And so the idea that there had been an actual bribe. $5 million each. $5 million each. Uh, this is the nucleus of the impeachment accusations. Well, it was an old story that uh, you may remember from 2019 when Donald Trump said 
the Bidens were corrupt in Ukraine. It's the same thing, but with an actual bribe from uh, an FBI informant who had been considered credible by the FBI for a long time. And so Republicans are saying, oh, we've got a credible source talking about a bribe. It really supercharged their investigation, which which sprawls across a lot of different things. But this was the main quid pro quo corruption that they had. And what the FBI revealed last week is that Smirnov had invented this bribery allegation by himself because he did not like Joe Biden. He just opposed him. And, and they showed his texts to his handler about how he didn't like Joe Biden running for president in 2020. And that's when he made this allegation. Now, the so that was that was it. it that that is what destroyed this bit of evidence. And then this week, they said this guy's also in touch with Russian agents, and they didn't several. I mean, if you if you read the documents, yes, all... when the government tried to keep Smirnov under confinement, it's not one Russian agent. I think it goes up to agent number five or some something like that. High ranking Russian officials. Yeah. Now they didn't say that they had independently verified this. They said he claimed this, but they seemed to endorse the idea because they said if you let him out of jail before his trial, those people will help him resettle in another country. He'll get out of here. And so he's been rearrested. They have not said that the the Ukrainian bribe was a Russian agent's uh, in, uh, misinformation. They said that he made that up himself. And then separately, he's in touch with Russian agents, Russian foreign intelligence services, and that they were working with him to cook up a new allegation about Hunter Biden that he'd been partying in a Ukrainian hotel and and the Russians had been eavesdropping on him as part of some scheme to develop compromising material in order to end the war in Ukraine. And that's part of the reason they arrested him. Hunter Biden never been to Ukraine. They knew that from travel records. So uh, it's not clear how intertwined the rest of his, his material has been with foreign intelligence services. But it's a, it's a pretty big question. It is. And at the same time, in addition to where for impeachment, we have to talk about the potential further implications of Smirnoff's Russian information reaching the heart of Republican political strategy. Because if the allegations in these court documents filed by the special counsel, the Trump-appointed special counsel, David Weiswendy, are true, the implication is that Russian disinformation, either intentionally or because they're dupes, is at the heart of political strategy of major figures like James Comer, like Jim Jordan, like, frankly, Fox News. That's the, that, that's the upshot here. Right. And, you know, every day is a new day for the United States Congress. They don't seem to look to the recent past. But, you know, the Russians have been involved in the last three elections, the, at least the last three elections, you know, going back to the Cold War, who knows. But the, um, you know, there were Russian bots trying to take down Hillary Clinton, you know, with with Facebook memes and things in 2016, there was, of course, the, you know, the allegations that were in the Steele dossier. And and every single time that, you know, Congress acts like, wait, Russia was involved here? It's really sort of, one should start to assume that when things like this come up that sound just a little too good to be true, that's just too much of a gift wrap bow for one side or the other, um, that, you know, and it might be the Russians. That, that's all true. And it's actually much more than that. I mean, the Senate Intelligence Committee report details in detail that Paul Manafort gave yes. Trump campaign private polling information to Konstantin Kalimnik, who's a Ukrainian and a Russian 
agent. Right. That information was passed to the Russian government from the Trump campaign, and it goes a lot deeper into a lot of other stuff, too, that right. we don't have time to delve into. It's only to say that none of that is new. Anita, the Washington Post reported in 2020 that pretty much everyone in Washington, including the White House, was warned that Rudy Giuliani in Ukraine digging dirt on the Bidens was being targeted by Russian intelligence. That doesn't say they necessarily knew about Smirnov's information, but the idea that the dirt coming from Ukraine is Russian disinfo isn't new in this town, and everybody knew or should have known. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. We've been hearing this, as Wendy has said, for, for the last couple election cycles. And there have been a number of reports, and sort of every time a new report comes out, everybody's like, oh, wow, this is this is new. But you're exactly right. We've been hearing this for a while now. Um, all sorts of ways that Russia information or disinformation, as you say, has been seeping into elections directly through parties or party operatives, but also through you know, social media and other ways that we've been learning about over the last few years. So definitely it's been around. Arthur, in Washington, when public figures might be the target or involved in foreign intelligence ops, they're given what's called a defensive briefing. Hey, by the way, the FBI might tell them, just so you know, the person you're dealing with, we think is a foreign agent. Did that happen here with Jim Jordan or James Comer or Ron Johnson or the other Republicans who've been pushing this information, were they ever told by American intelligence, the FBI, that like, watch it, you might be dealing with Russian agents here? Not exactly, because they knew that this was a confidential informant. The person who had uh, made this bribe allegation was somebody who was known to have unsavory conduct. That's the whole point of of an FBI informant, that they are even allowed to commit crimes in the furtherance of uh, bringing information to the Bureau in some circumstances. So uh, the FBI told them that you know, without speaking directly to the merit of the, the claim that this informant had made, that this material was raw and unverified and that such material often comes from people with motivations, people who can be terrorists or uh, you know just not U.S. sympathizers. So they were warned uh, last summer that this is not something you should publicize and run with. What have they said now that they know that this is probably Russian disinformation? What has Jim Jordan said? Well, they, they said, oh, this had nothing, you know, this was not an important part of our impeachment inquiry at all. Uh, the facts of the case remain that Hunter Biden had this job with the Ukrainian energy company and his dad, uh, as vice president, did a favor for that company, which is something that State Department officials have debunked repeatedly. But they've just gone back to that while discarding this element. Uh, they've excised it from letters that they sent. They actually sent a letter this week where they a draft went out with the paragraph boilerplate about the bribe. And then they said, whoops, they updated it and excised that draft and just trying to, to sweep it under the rug. Uh, but Democrats won't let them. I mean, they're saying this is, you, you must end this impeachment inquiry right away. This is full-blown Russian propaganda. Well, Jim Jordan did say about this information, it is what it is. That's a quote. So we'll see if there's more to the story. And if there's more to the story about how this information has wended its way into Republican political strategy as this goes forward. As Arthur says, Alexander Smirnov was let out with an ankle monitor and a demand not to travel. And he's been rearrested now 
um, just yesterday. So on the legal front, we'll see where that goes. All right, we'll leave that story aside for something a little more encouraging in the world, at least if you're somebody who owes student debt, because President Biden said on Wednesday that he plans to cancel $1.2 billion in student loan debt for over 150,000 borrowers. Wendy, who are the the lucky ones. Do we know who they are? Yes, we do. The lucky ones are about 150,000 people who were enrolled in what is known as the SAVE plan, which is an income-driven repayment program. And if you have been in that program for at least a decade, which really underscores what the student loan problem is, then your debt has been canceled. And, you know, go have a great weekend, right? <laughs> so, um, And uh, this is not only a good thing for those 150,000 borrowers. It is a crucial part, I think, of Biden's attempt to win back the affection of young voters who have been sort of, you know, looking around for an alternative now for a few months. Um, Anita, Joe Biden has famously tried to cancel student debt before. It's been knocked down by the courts. In fact, the Supreme Court. Why is this different? Why can he do it now? Yeah, you're exactly right. The Supreme Court uh, blo- blocked his original student loan debt forgiveness plan that sought relief for 40 million Americans. So he's making it more narrow. And I- interestingly, the reason this one of the reasons this was a smaller amount of people is you had to sign up for something in particular. So he's looking at sort of doing the same thing, but he has been back and forth on this. You know, he we have heard from him from from Joe Biden from the beginning. He's campaigned on this. He's talked about it. When you go out and talk to voters, as I know we all have across the country, this is one thing that keeps coming up. Democrats keep saying, young people keep saying, you know, we want him to make good on this promise. So he keeps kind of going back to it. This is something that he said he would do. And, and, and he is trying different avenues to try to get this through. And so, as Wendy mentioned, it, he went through this particular program. And we should expect more of these um, these batches to come um, in the coming in the coming, you know, months. I'm painting with a broad brush here, Arthur, but young people are very mad at Joe Biden over the war in Gaza. They were also very mad about not getting student debt canceled. Does this help? I, I acknowledge that is a very broad brush to paint young voters with. So you can paint it with a finer brushes if, if you want. But Anita put her finger on sort of the, the, the politics here. Definitely. But the scale of what's happening we, we needs to be, uh, we, we need to provide this kind of, a billion is a lot of money. But the student debt outstanding is almost two trillion, so this is a very tiny piece, and and it's what he was doing before. There are federal programs that already forgive your student debt, uh, and so he's working with those to make it seem like his more ambitious plan is still happening. Well, there was news also this week on immigration. We have talked on this roundup so many times for so many weeks about back and forth on border security, Republican moves to reject the deal that they demanded in Congress. So now Joe Biden and the Biden administration is considering working around Congress to take action on the border. NBC News and others reported that the plan would make it harder for migrants to pass the initial screening for asylum at the border. Recently arrived migrants who don't meet the criteria would be deported under this sketch of a plan. Arthur, what else do we know? Not much else. I mean, they haven't said that they're definitely doing this. uh, And it's in the context of the White House wanting to win immigration politics, a a previously unfathomable outcome for Democrats. But after Donald Trump and Republicans nuked that aggressive border security bill that Democrats came up with, 
They now want to look busy. Uh, and I think they also do want to stem the number of people who are crossing at the southern border. I mean, it's been down recently, but could easily go up again this year. And it is a problem. And it's it's overwhelming for the system there. And it's like you said, the, the details that are known uh, is, is that he'll limit, you know, make it more difficult for somebody to claim asylum if they're entering between ports of entry, uh, which I believe would have to do with the way that agents evaluate their fears of persecution back home. But you can think of it as they're just quickly throwing people out when they apprehend them. So, Wendy, um, as Arthur mentioned, Republicans nuked the bipartisan border deal <laughs> that was passed out of the Senate. Now that the president is maybe we're seeing reports thinking of acting administratively, acting on his own, what is Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, saying? <laughs> He's calling it a gimmick uh, and uh, – you know, something that Biden is trying to do maybe to get attention um, while they the, – the reality is the Republicans, yes, Mike Johnson is right. They most recently first raised this issue as a problem. They came up with a bill. They got Democrats to agree on it. There was a compromise in which no one was happy. That's what compromises are, as any of us who are married know. And then the Senate passed it. The House refused to pass it. And it the, was also Mike Johnson when the House refused to pass it yes. who said, we don't need a new law. Joe Biden should do this on his own. Exactly. And now, now Joe Biden is, is doing, doing it on his own. On his own. And Mike Johnson is calling it a gimmick. Now, look, I mean, it is not only is it an actual problem that needs to be solved. It's been a problem for decades. But for the 2024 election... Our polling and others have shown that not only is immigration the second highest ranking issue after the economy, it is uh, – voters are blaming Biden mm. for it. He needs to do something. Major political salience. And Arthur, as you said, people really, really are trying to look busy on this issue because the polls say they darn well better do that. And now some musical history that was made this week. Beyonce's Texas Hold'em debuted at the top of the Billboard Country chart on Wednesday. She's now the first black woman to hit number one in the history of that chart. It's a notable moment for country music, which has a fraught relationship with artists of color, to say the very least. Her new single overtook the record set by Linda Martell more than 50 years ago. Martell peaked at the 22 spot with her song Color Him Father, according to Billboard. We're going to take a short break as we listen to Bay. We'll be back with you shortly. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Guys, before the pause, we were talking about the attempt at a border policy, a new border policy from Joe Biden and the Biden administration. Uh, Donald Trump has a view on the border. He's also running for president. So let's hear some comments from just a couple of days ago or within the last day or two about what Donald Trump would do on the border if he were elected. We have no choice within moments of my inauguration. We will begin the largest domestic deportation operation in America. 
We have no choice because this is not sustainable. Arthur, on Wednesday, The Washington Post shared new details about Donald Trump's plan. Some of the reporting details talks about deportation camps, moving millions of people out of the country. Jason Hauser, a former top ICE official, told The Post some of the ideas are, quote, psychotic. I got a fundraising email from the Trump campaign just last night that advertised mass deportations, in quotes, over and over and over in that fundraising email. Um, What is Trump actually planning if it's not already clear if he's elected? I believe that the program would focus on people who've been here for less than two years. So it's not deporting 12 million or 15 million people, but but merely several million. Uh, But I I believe it's almost historically unprecedented, but not entirely, right, Wendy? That's right. That's right. In the 1950s, uh, Eisenhower had a program whose name is so vile I won't say it on the air, a derogatory slur for Mexican migrants, but it was a mass roundup of of largely Mexican migrants. Then, of course, now the migrants come from even further afield. But I'm sure, uh, Arthur, that as the National Guard goes through these communities to try to deport these people, that they will make sure that everyone they grab is has only been here for less than two years, and there are no American citizens or green card holders would be swept up. Thank with you that. for clarifying that for me. <laughs> I also received the deportation email, yes, and it was yeah. it was too. striking if you hadn't yeah. been following his rallies. Well, Anita, the Trump campaign also said that the former president would sign an executive order on day one, his first day in office, to withhold passports, social security numbers, and other government benefits from the children of undocumented immigrants born in the United States. This sounds like a direct challenge to the 14th Amendment. It does. And I would suspect that within a minute of that uh, signing, if he does it, he would be taken to court. I mean, you know, we heard this from him when he was president. Not exactly these things, not an executive order that does this on day one, you know, not mass deportations. But we heard a lot of different things. And he did do a lot of things when he was president. You know, a lot of people didn't like them. Some people liked them. I will say he was in court and his team was in court a lot of the time. A lot of things were challenged. He he. He realized quickly as president that a lot of the things that he talks about, um, he's he's going to be challenged legally, and he's he's wound up in court, and it takes forever. And so, I would suspect that if he got back into office, those people that didn't know what he was like last time are fully aware. Uh, the ACLU and others um, who fought him last time would be ready to do so again. Last time he campaigned on a uh, in, in sixteen, he campaigned on a Muslim travel ban. He did that. They, they enacted a ban on travel from Muslim-majority countries. So it's you have to take it seriously and literally. And, you know, Trump allies have been saying that they did stumble over some things like that Muslim ban was eventually overturned and things. But Trump allies have been saying that this time, if he is elected, they are, one, for their side, not going to hire people who are longtime government employees who might end up in the quote-unquote resistance like you know, Miles Taylor who worked for DHS under uh, – Trump and wrote a book, and that this time they know what they're doing. This time they know how to pull the levers of government. So if you don't like Donald Trump and his policies, know that this time it's not just going to be Donald Trump talking about it. This time he might actually be able to pull some of this stuff With off. loyalty tests for the civil service at every level and the purging of people who don't exactly pledge fealty right. to Donald Trump or his 
or his program. All right, all, all in store. And I want to say how important it is, I think, that we talk about the stakes of this election, not just the polling numbers, who's up and who's down, but this discussion on the stakes and what the candidates are actually going to do with their power in America is important and gratifying. So I'm glad you're all here. Uh, let's take a moment and make sure that we don't forget about some of Donald Trump's money troubles and his legal troubles, because we all know about the ruling, the fraud ruling in New York, where Donald Trump was ordered to pay $355 million plus interest as a penalty for civil fraud in his business practices in the state of New York. Earlier this week, New York Attorney General Letitia James told reporters that she would seize 40 Wall Street, the Trump building, if she has to get her money. Um, Wendy, while Donald Trump's finances are pretty opaque, to say the least. <laughs> Forbes estimated his net worth to be $2 billion, I think, last year. Mm -hmm. Is there any reason why, I mean, that's a lot. Is there any reason why he wouldn't be able to just pay? Well, yes. I mean, a lot of that is not cash on hand. A lot of that is buildings, properties, a golf course in Scotland, things like that, that contribute to Mar-a-Lago itself, things that contribute to his wealth. Um, also remember that Donald Trump values his name as an asset, which Letitia James won't accept a business card with his name on it. Um, and remember that the interest, I believe, is something like $87,000 a day or a week. Um, but it's like 9% in New York. Yeah, it's very expensive it's to not pay. Very, very expensive. He's having trouble, we're hearing, finding a bondsman who will, who will, you know, put up a bond for him. And, you know, rich or not, $355 million is a lot of money to come up with in a short amount of time. Especially when you owe another 83.5 to the woman that you defamed right. after the jury says you sexually assaulted her. And remember that the lawyer meter is running for four criminal cases at the same time. Uh, so he can declare bankruptcy. He'll get a court to say, "I'm sorry, you can't have this money." I don't I'm think bankrupt, sir. I don't know that Donald Trump, with his current political stature in America and the fact that it's largely based on his business acumen, could afford to declare bankruptcy the way he did, you know, several other times. I think he could. <laughs> Arthur, he Arthur could votes for bankruptcy. Yeah. <laughs> I vote for if you're in the market for any of the Trump properties. Maybe sit by because maybe one's going to be for sale soon. Who knows? But but Wendy raises the serious point, which is he does need to raise cash. You can't pay the debt with the deed to a golf course. It doesn't work that way. So he does need to raise some cash. Um, the campaign is, of course, ongoing. And while we do talk about the stakes on this program, fundraising is important in politics. There's no doubt about it. It makes a big difference. Donald Trump is still raising money for his political campaign. Recent campaign finance disclosures show that Trump's fund fundraising is trailing behind Joe Biden's by about $20 million, at least as of right now. An analysis by the Financial Times shows that Donald Trump and his campaign has also attracted 200,000 fewer donors going into 2024 than they had at this time four years ago. Arthur, is there any kind of signal here about enthusiasm among Republicans, or is this too blunt a measure to, to know if, if fewer people are donating, fewer small-dollar donors are getting involved in, in MAGA? Well, he's had a, a primary that's been more nettlesome than Joe Biden's, uh, and th I think some people waited to see if, it, if anyone could actually challenge him. But, but people who are watching this from the sidelines – should not put much stock in it. Uh, his his power comes from his demagoguery, not from his money. So uh, the the amount of money in his campaign bank, you know, he 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 raised less than Hillary Clinton uh, and wound up winning that contest. It, it, I don't think it matters that much. Well, Trump's last remaining competitor, 
for the Republican Party nomination, also outraised him last month. Nikki Haley's campaign raked in more than $11 million. And here's what Nikki Haley had to say ahead of South Carolina's GOP primary tomorrow. I'm not going anywhere. People have a right to have their voices heard. And they deserve a real choice, not a Soviet-style election where there's only one candidate and he gets 99% of the vote. Anita, uh, $11 million Nikki Haley raised, and I guess that's the definition of not having to go anywhere. She can she can hang in as long as the money's coming in. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, a lot of times we see candidates drop out because they've run out of money, literally, and can't afford it. She's not there yet. She still has some major donors, some big donors, um, and she's going to continue on. You know, she's really the last woman standing here. She also could be banking on or looking towards some of these big trials he is coming up, one scheduled for March. If, if Trump is convicted, what's going to happen? We don't actually know. We've never been in this place before, but she might be thinking, let's just hang on until that, till that point. I want to make sure that we talk about some big news that a lot of people might have missed this week with all the other news going around. This news was out of Wisconsin after years of court fights and state Supreme Court elections. Wisconsin now has a new legislative map. On Monday, the governor and the legislature approved new maps. And why why does this matter? Because Wisconsin is infamous for being the most gerrymandered state in America. Now the new maps signed by the governor have an almost even split between Democratic and Republican districts. Arthur, why are these new maps so important for, frankly, democracy and representation in Wisconsin? The new maps would mean that just because they uh, win more votes than Republicans, uh, Democrats could now actually rep- you know, uh, have more control in the state legislature than Republicans. They've, they've uh, been able to prevail in statewide races for years, and yet ha- it's been a Republican majority legislature. And so it could be more normal there instead of having that outcome. Well, just so you know how infamous and how gerrymandered Wisconsin is, why it's the worst in the nation, as of now – We all know Wisconsin is the quintessential swing state. The voters are just about 50-50 divided in Wisconsin. I think that's fair to say. But in the state Senate, Wisconsin has 21 Republicans and only 11 Democrats. In the assembly, it's even more gerrymandered. Republicans hold a 64 to 35 advantage in the state assembly, even though voters, as I said, are 50-50. So these new maps might redress that gerrymandered inequality in the state of Wisconsin. All right. With just a couple minutes we have left, I want to check in with each of you for a little bit of a reporter's notebook, find out what stories you're looking forward to for next week, what you think should be on our radar, what's going to be important. We'll take just a, you know, a minute each. Anita, how about you? What are you looking forward to next week? Um, You know, we talked about immigration and we talked about the border. I am really fascinated to see what the reaction is from progressives and people in in Joe Biden's party to to what he's floating out there and what the White House is floating out there regarding the border, right? This has been really fascinating to watch. I've covered, uh, as a reporter, covered immigration for a long time. I'm really looking towards the State of the Union address, which obviously they say a lot of things there that don't end up coming out. I'm looking for it as a messaging uh, thing. This is March 7th, so it's coming up in a couple weeks. How much is Joe Biden really going to lean into the border and immigration, and what is he going to say? I'm very, I'm very interested. And does he risk more progressive support if he leans in too hard? Absolutely. We're going to see in the next couple of weeks how much he gets the pushback from members of his own party on, on what he's floating out there. Arthur, how about you? What are you looking forward to? This week, the impeachment inquiry, uh, you know, even as it's been collapsing all around, they had the president's brother in 
for a transcribed interview. I was there for that. And next week, they'll have the president's son, Hunter Biden. So we'll be staking that out and, and hearing what they say. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Hunter Biden will not incriminate his father, but the spin that emerges from it will, will be consequential. Is that live hearing testimony or or private deposition. He wanted a live hearing testimony. He came to one and they like yelled at him and showed naked pictures of him. So he agreed to this private deposition. <laughs> Another thing I'll just add that might be interesting about the Hunter Biden aspect. We spent a lot of time on the show today talking about Smirnoff and the Russian disinformation being filtered through the impeachment inquiry. Hunter Biden's lawyer, Abby Lowell, has made discovery demands for disparaging information and the source of it about his client has made discovery demands on the special counsel. And it may help explain, we don't know why Smirnoff was charged and why he was charged now. A lot of the pressure on this might be coming from Hunter Biden's lawyer. Stay tuned. Wendy, how about you? What are you looking for? Well, there's probably three things I'm looking for next week is to watch on Sunday after Nikki Haley is, you know, politically humiliated in her own home state where she was the governor, where Trump is polling two to one ahead of her um, in their Republican primary, how she continues to explain her candidacy and her plan to stay in for Super Tuesday. Very interested in whether the government shuts down on March 1st, on Friday, I think that is. Oh, yeah. That. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Remember that, guys? Hey, remember that? And, okay. then, um, and whether Mike Johnson and the uh, Senate can come to any sort of agreement. And then there's also the Michigan Democratic primary. And I'm very interested to see what the turnout there. I mean, Biden's going to win, obviously. But how many people turn out? How many voters of color? How many Arab American voters? How many young voters? How many UAW mm. voters? Arab American voters upset about the war in Gaza. And we've heard so much about their displeasure with Joe Biden and White House policy there. It will be a critical test. Our thanks to this week's guest, Politico's Anita Kumar, Wendy Benjaminson, Washington senior editor for Bloomberg News, and Arthur Delaney, senior reporter at HuffPost. As always, it's great to have you guys here. And shout out to Odysseus, the craft that delivered America's return to the moon after a 52-year absence just yesterday. It was touch and go there for a while. And for a few minutes, the company Intuitive Machines thought they'd lost Adi. Adi is on the moon, on the moon's south pole. It's the place where there's lots of frozen water and where Artemis astronauts are shooting for a human landing in 2026. So we cheer it on. Arthur, who was the last human on the moon, 1972? I don't know. It was Gene Cernan, 1972. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer with help from Kellen Quigley and Kennedy Wright. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aline Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand. And Barbon Guiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU. It's part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Zwillick. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest 
If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at BetterHelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.